السلام عليكم ورحمه الله وبركاته الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونؤمن به ونتوكل عليه ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له ونشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له ونشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله صلى الله تعالى عليه وعلى اله وصحبه وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا كثيرا اما بعد فاعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم ان الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا ايها الذين امنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل على محمد وعلى ال محمد كما صليت على ابراهيم وعلى ال ابراهيم انك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على محمد وعلى ال محمد كما باركت على ابراهيم وعلى ال ابراهيم انك حميد مجيد respected listeners we are now approaching the end of the month of rajab and we are about to see the beginning of sha'ban and then a mere four weeks later the arrival of ramadan rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam's own practice was to prepare himself for ramadan and to prepare the companions radiyallahu anhum for the upcoming month and we should as part of that sunnah observe the same and prepare ourselves mentally spiritually physically and practically for the month of ramadan so that we can spend the month in the best way possible to maximize its benefits its virtues and rewards and so that's not a moment of it goes to waste if we consider the month of ramadan and the life of rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam and his personal practice it can be seen as follows that with the arrival of the month of sha'ban the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam increased his personal worship of fasting and so sha'ban in terms of fasting and deeds was more intense for rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam than the rest of the year then with the coming of ramadan the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam's own ibadah increased for the first part of ramadan and then as ramadan's days passed coming towards the end of ramadan rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam would increase his personal activity and worship even more so much so that with the arrival of the final ashara the final 10 days Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam would commit himself to i'tikaf 
the retreat, the seclusion, the focus and the concentration and devotion to Allah's worship. And this would mean secluding himself in the masjid and focusing on ibadah all the time. So these were the final ten days. And in these days he would even ensure that his family remained awake at night, engaging in the worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Not just during the day, but optional worship at night. And this culminated with the search for Laylatul Qadr. And i'tikaf in the final ten days in itself is an activity for the search of Laylatul Qadr, the night of Qadr. So if we see a gradual progression beginning with the month of Sha'ban, leading all the way up till the end of the month of Ramadan. And that's just in the Prophet ﷺ's personal practice, as far as his encouragement of the companions of the Allah is concerned, then with the towards the end of Sha'ban, Rasulullah is known to have addressed the Sahaba Radiallahu Anhum specifically, preparing them for the upcoming month with the mention of its virtues its exclusivity, its speciality, and various other features and facts of the month of Ramadan. So Rasulullah actually devoted parts of his sermon and his preaching to this particular topic, not in Ramadan, not just in Ramadan, but before Ramadan, preparing the Sahaba radiallahu anhum just as he prepared himself and his family. So we should observe the same sunnah and prepare ourselves in every way, mentally, spiritually, physically, and practically. What I mean by mentally is obvious. We familiarize ourselves with the virtues of Ramadan, the virtues and the blessings of its various activities, fasting, recitation of the Qur'an, remaining awake at night and engaging in worship to the best of our ability during the hours of the night, sadaqah, charity in Ramadan, and various other deeds to familiarize ourselves and to make ourselves cognizant and aware of the virtues and the rewards of these activities, as well as its rulings, the rulings of Ramadan, the beginning of Ramadan, fasting, sahur, iftar, the laws of do's and don'ts, etc., This is just mental preparation. And spiritually, we gear gear ourselves up for the upcoming month. Because, like with any activity, it's impossible to just plunge into the deep end right at the beginning of Ramadan. In fact, even Rasulullah would physically prepare himself. Although he had no need to, but he set an example for the Ummah, for his followers. That's why Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha relates that the, in a hadith related by Imam Bukhari and Imam Muslim in their Sahih and by others, Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha says that I never saw the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam fast for any whole month except for the month of Ramadan. But other than the month of Ramadan, 
I never saw him fast in any month as much as I saw him fast in the month of Sha'bah. And in one narration she says that he would fast for the whole month. Nay, and then she corrects herself, he would fast, I would see him fasting for the whole month. Nay, sorry, I would see him fasting for most of the month, nay, the whole month. So, in fact, the Prophet ﷺ did not fast for all 30 days. But he fasted for most of the month, missing very little. So much so, that Umm Mu'minin Aisha radiallahu anha says that I saw him fast for the whole month except very little, nay, the whole month. So it's, it's an exaggeration uh, to emphasize the fact that he fasted for the whole month. And Umm Salama radiallahu anha, one of the other wives of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, she relates in a hadith recorded by Imam Abu Dawood, Imam Tirmidhi, Imam Nasi, that I never saw the Prophet ﷺ fast for any two consecutive months except for the month of Sha'ban and Ramadan. In fact, in the previous hadith of Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha, if I can just relate that to you again, in the narration of Bukhari and Muslim, she actually says that the Prophet ﷺ would fast until it seemed as though he is not going to break his fast. The meaning of this is that he would fast for one day and then the second day. Not consecutively, but he'd fast for one day, second day, third day, fourth day. And his days and period of fasting would be so long that his family and the companions, they would assume that now the Prophet ﷺ is on a continuous cycle of fasting. It seems that he's not going to stop. So no one would know for how long he would fast. So the Prophet ﷺ, she says, would fast until it seemed as though he is not going to stop fasting. And then at times, he would not fast at all for one day, two days, three days. So he'd have a period and a cycle of not fasting. And this would be so long that the Sahaba, that Umm Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha says that he would stop fasting so much so that it would seem as though he's not going to begin fasting again. And this is described even more beautifully by another companion, radiallahu anhu, who says, Never did you want to see the Prophet ﷺ in a state of fasting except that you'd see him fasting. And never would you want to see him in a state of not fasting, i.e. iftar, except that you would see him in a state of iftar. In Arabic, Iftar is the opposite of siyam, fasting. Although we refer to it as the evening meal. Again, it's one of those many words of Arabic which, through excessive usage and wide application, uh, can be misunderstood at times and it has lost some of its original meaning. Just like ihram. We call ihram the two pieces of cloth in Umrah and Hajj. But in reality... Uh, the ihram is not the two pieces of cloth, as I've explained repeatedly in the commentary of Kitab al-Hajj and Kitab al-Umrah from Sahih al-Bukhari. But ihram is a state. It's a sacrosanct state in which many things are forbidden. So ihram refers to the state. And one of the many prohibitions of that state, 
along with clipping nails and trimming hair and removing dirt and grime from the body and applying perfume, along, uh, along with these and other prohibitions, one of the prohibitions is that one cannot wear normal stitched sewn clothes. But again, stitching is... Uh, there is an exception to that as well. The real prohibition is to wear normal clothes in which limbs can be inserted. So, like a leg for the uh, a leg of the trousers for the leg, or a sleeve for the arm. So, in any case, this is one of the prohibitions. And in order to avoid these prohibitions, people put on two simple pieces of cloth, and that is a sunnah. Two simple pieces of cloth. But they weren't referred to as ihram. Ihram is a state, the overall state, not the two pieces of cloth. But through common usage, now we think that ihram means the pieces of cloth. Similar with iftar. Iftar originally means a state. Just like ihram. A state of not fasting. But through very, through common usage, we now consider iftar to be merely the evening meal that breaks the fast. So the Sahabi radiallahu anhu says, never would you want to see the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam in a state of fasting except that you would see him. And never would you want to see him in iftar, meaning in a state of non, not fasting, except that you would see him. That was the miraculous condition of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha says in this hadith of Bukhari and Muslim, that he would fast until it seemed that he's not going to stop fasting. And then he would continue not fasting, so much so that it seemed as though he is not going to begin fasting. And then she says, I have never seen him fast for a whole month, except for the month of Ramadan. And I have never seen him fasting more in any month other than Ramadan, except for the month of Sha'ban. And in one narration she says, that he would fast for the whole month, except very little, nay, he would fast for the whole month. And then Umm Salama radiyallahu anha, another wife of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, she narrates in this hadith recorded by Abu Dawood Tirmidhi and Nasai, that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, I never saw him fasting for two consecutive months, continuously, except for the month of Sha'ban and the month of Ramadan. He would fast for both of them consecutively, so much so that he would fast for the month of Sha'ban and then join it with the month of Ramadan. So both of these hadith from the closest members of the Prophet's family, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, the two wives, show that the Prophet wasallam would use a month of Sha'ban in order to fast. And in fact, in one very beautiful hadith, Usamut ibn Zayd, radiyallahu the son of the one-time adopted son of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Zayd ibn Haritha radiyallahu who was most beloved to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, since he was very close to him, he says that I asked the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, that, O oh, Messenger of Allah, I do not see you fasting at any other time, as much as I see you fasting in the month of Sha'ban. Why? So the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, this is a month in which people are negligent of the month. 
for deeds are presented and raised to Allah in this month. And I wish for my deeds to be raised to Allah whilst I am in a state of fasting. And that was the Messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So I was saying about preparing ourselves mentally and physically. This is a physical preparation, the physical and the spiritual. That even the Messenger, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, would build up his fasting for the whole month of Sha'ban, and then begin Ramadan in that manner. Because for any activity, even spiritual activity, it's very difficult to plunge into the deep end. One has to gradually build it up. Physically, we may be able to do it. All of a sudden, at the beginning of Ramadan, we start fasting. And physically, we may be able to complete the fast. But spiritually, it's quite possible that when we begin the fast, we're more concerned about the hunger and the heat and the thirst. And especially considering the long hours, summer hours of Ramadan this year and for the next few years. So physically we might manage, but spiritually will we be focused on the fast as we should be. If we are constantly thinking about and moaning and complaining or if not loudly voicing our complaints, then grieving within and being concerned within and constantly thinking about just the heat and the thirst and the fatigue and the long hours, then spiritually, is that a good fast? Or is it just a question of remaining hungry and thirsty? So we need to build ourselves up spiritually and physically. And I also said practically, practically... In the sense that we need to plan our time. We need to ensure that we conclude our personal tasks, our work, and try and finish as much as we can before the month and postpone what we can till after the month. So that in the month of Ramadan, along with the essentials of work and living and family life and personal needs, along with all of that, the essentials, we can devote as much time and energy as possible to the ibadah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, to the worship of Allah, to prayer and supplication, and ultimately to self-reform. Because this is not, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is in no need. Rather, it's ultimately for ourselves. So it was part of that sunnah, we should begin our preparation and in all ways spiritually, practically, physically, mentally and inshallah as part of that for the next four weeks, for the next few weeks till the beginning of the month I will be speaking about Ramadan in various ways. It may not follow a particular pattern but I will try to cover as many topics as possible such as the virtues of Ramadan, its blessings, the virtues of various deeds in Ramadan, fasting, the recitation of the Qur'an, charity, the relationship of the Qur'an with the month of Ramadan and with fasting, practical examples from the life of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam and the lives of the noble companions and some of the great and noble saints and scholars of this ummah from the past, etc. So in the hope that we may be able to draw an example from them and apply that example and learn.
I may also, inshallah, today as well, I will also comment on some of the verses of the Qur'an in relation to the month of Ramadan. Because before any hadith, ultimately our fundamental and primary source is the Holy Qur'an itself. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Ya ayyuhal ladheena amanu kutiba alaykum as-siyam wa kama kutiba ala ladheena min qablikum la'allakum tattaqoon. O believers, fasting has been ordained for you as it was ordained for those who preceded you. Perhaps you may attain taqwa. This is the first verse which speaks about the obligation of fasting. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made fasting obligatory. And this was after the hijrah. Not during the time of Makkah al-Mukarramah, but after the Prophet ﷺ arrived in Medina. Fasting became an obligatory pillar of Islam. Something as important as prayer, and the two go hand in hand. The obligation of fasting and the obligation of prayer. There is no concept of acting on one and discarding the other. Siyam in Arabic is very is the same as song. One can say song or siyam. And originally both mean abstention, withholding, refraining, abstaining. So anyone who refrains from something withholds, keeps away from something, refrains from it, that is a form of siyam. But in the religious context, in this context, siyam specifically came to mean fasting, meaning abstaining from food, drink and carnal desires in that state for a specified period from dawn till dusk or dawn from the crack of dawn till sunset. Now, one cannot eat, one cannot drink, one cannot indulge or in carnal desires or fulfill one's needs. That's, a, that's the meaning of siyam, that's the meaning of fasting. Of course, it has its many rules and laws, which this is not the time for. The purpose of fasting is manifold, but the one single purpose mentioned in the Qur'an is taqwa, is the attainment of taqwa. And I'll speak about that in a moment. But what this verse tells us, that the obligation of fasting is not exclusive to this ummah, to this nation. But fasting has been the practice of many nations before, as a religious deity. It was a prescribed thing, because fasting has many benefits. And all of these benefits were known to the people. He has health benefits, 
mental benefits. It's the perfect detox. And spiritually, it has immense benefits. In fact, its purpose ultimately is spiritual, although these are secondary tertiary benefits which are available for the mind and the heart, for the mind and the body. And because of these benefits, virtually all cultures, all religions have a history as well as a current practice of some form of fasting. It may, the details may not be the same. Sometimes people abstain from solid foods and only consume liquids. Others abstain from cooked foods and eat only raw food, raw fruits and vegetables, but nothing cooked. Others abstain from all foods, including fruits and vegetables, but they still consume water, just water. But the fast of Islam and the fast practiced by Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, remarkably in the deserts of Arabia, in that heat, is to abstain from all food and drink, including water. Nothing at all. And of course it's difficult, but it's difficult for those who are unaccustomed to it. But Allah himself has said, as he says later in the set of verses, that Allah wishes ease for you, Allah does not wish difficulty for you. So, we have the ability, we have the potential, it's in us, we can do it. And for the Sahaba radiallahu anhum and Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, they were able to manage it very well. And they would do it optionally and voluntarily a lot of the time. So this is a practice to be found in virtually all cultures and religions and it has immense benefits. And I'm sure many of you have read articles about the health benefits of abstaining from food for two days a week, knowing that the fast of the Prophet ﷺ, his sunnah was to fast on Mondays and Thursdays. So fasting for two days a week, according to others, fasting for two consecutive days uh, has immense benefits. In fact, fasting for one day has immense benefits. But... All of these studies show that the fast has to be a proper fast. So one doesn't just change the time of eating. If one's going to indulge at the beginning of the fast and indulge at the end of the fast, many of the benefits are negated. So even these modern contemporary studies show that the fast has to be a genuine fast with a period of deprivation for the body. And... You can't just indulge and feast at the beginning and feast at the end. Otherwise, most of the benefits are negated. And indeed, this is the fast of Islam too. The fast of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, the fast of the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum. What suhoor was minimal, iftar or fatur uh, or the evening meal was minimal. In fact, sometimes the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam would do suhoor on a, de- a single date. And he'd do iftar. He'd eat the evening meal. He'd break his fast on a single date, sometimes a sip of water, sometimes a sip of milk. And as we learn from the hadith, one of the 
practices he had was sawiq. Sawiq is a mush of barley, barley flakes or similar wheat flakes, etc. Mainly would be barley. So he would take barley flakes or barley, small bits of barley, and that would be mixed with water or milk. And that would be known as sawiq. It was a, it was a barley porridge, quite simply. And this is the uh, barley is very beneficial at the end of the fast. I've spoken about this before. This is why, if you look in virtually all cultures, there is food which has barley, which is consumed at the end of the fast. But many people don't know the origin. So you have things like, forgive me, forgive the names, but uh, halim. You have kichra. You have. Dishes all the way from Morocco in the West to the Far East. And all of these dishes are consumed specifically in Ramadan at the end of the fast. They are a speciality of Ramadan. And all of them have one common feature. They all have barley. And I believe this all goes back to the practice of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum where they would consume sawiq at the end of the fast. And sawiq is barley mush or barley porridge. So that was minimal. This, this was the iftar of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and his suhoor would be water, dates, or minimal food if, if he ever consumed it. So that is the proper fast. This is what leads to the main health benefits for both the body and the mind. And, and the spirit, most importantly, the spirit. And this is, this leads me to this next point, which is, I said about deprivation. That you deprive the body of various food, of foods and drink. The reason is, Islamically, this is one of the goals and the purposes of fasting. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forces us into a state of fasting. As I mentioned before last week, this is a period of training. And as humans, we share characteristics with the animals, we share characteristics with the angels. Angelic qualities of goodness, of aspiration, of loftiness, of enlightenment, of higher intelligence of the worship of Allah, of his tasbih. On the other hand, unfortunately, we share many characteristics with the animal kingdom. And alone, unlike the birds and the beasts, and unlike the angels, who are both in a constant state, they are as they are. They do not rise or fall. They are as they are. Their nature does not change. Human beings, in between sharing both characteristics, or the characteristics of both, human beings have the potential to change, to sink or to rise, to be as low or even worse in animalistic and bestial behavior than the beasts themselves, or to actually rise to such heights that Allah boasts of them to the angels. But the thing which keeps us, which prevents us from rising to those heights, is 
those bestial characteristics and qualities which we share with the animals, which is eating, drinking, recreation and procreation. The animals engage in these behaviours and in these needs, and we do exactly the same. So in order to curb and control these animalistic desires, these bestial behaviours, and to ensure that we are able to rise above that lowly station and become what Allah wants us to become. If we don't do it voluntarily, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala places an obligation upon us in the month of Ramadan to do it so that we have no choice. We have to. In the hope of attaining taqwa. It's a, it's a period of purification. Fasting purifies the mind, the body. The, it controls one's desires. It actually purifies the physical body. Most importantly, the heart, the soul and the spirit. Prophet ﷺ says in a hadith later by Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiyallahu and recorded by Imam Bukhari and Imam Muslim and many others. Prophet ﷺ says, and this is the wording of Sahih Muslim, من استطاع منكم يا معشر الشباب من استطاع منكم الباءة فليتزوج فإنه أغض للبصر وأحسن للفرج ومن لم يستطع فعليه بالصوم فإنه له وجاء. The O Assembly of Young Men Whoever amongst you has the ability to marry, then he should marry. For this is more lowering for the gaze and more protecting for one's chastity. And whoever is unable to marry, then let him, not let him, but for alayhi bisawm, then he should fast, he should adhere to fasting. فَإِنَّهُ لَهُ For it is, normally, we euphemistically translate this as protection. But wijah, for the students of Arabic, simply means emasculation. It means unmanning of a man. It means emasculation. Which is a very direct term to describe how powerful fasting is as an antidote to one's desires, and as a cure for one's bestiality. The Prophet ﷺ calls it wijah. Wijah means, not protection, that's a euphemistic translation. Wijah means emasculation. Neutering. It neuters man. Fasting neuters a man. And therefore it purifies one's body. And I also mentioned that and this is something to be noted, that many people complain or express their concern that at the beginning of the period of fasting, rather than seeing their desires suppressed, of course this applies to men uh, most often, or invariably just to men, but they complain that at the beginning of a period of fasting, rather than their desires being suppressed, they feel invigorated energy. They feel more vigor and a greater desire. So they often approach ulama and complain that, you know, what do we do? It's not helping fasting actually, rather than suppressing my desire, it increases it. And many are at a loss to explain this. And some, of them, some people just simplistically explain that, you the problem.
But that's not the case. The, the, the words of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa are very true. Fasting is a cure and a protection and an emasculation. But what happens? Because fasting, along with the mind and the soul and the heart and the spirit, it purifies the body, it detoxifies it, it creates energy, vigor and health. And it, it actually cleanses the body from within, it increases a person's natural health and well-being. Because of that, a person experiences or feels that rising desire. But this is only during, in a transitional period. Once the body balances itself and the person continues to fast and the body finds its natural balance, then the desire will be suppressed. And the words of Rasulullah will prove to be very true. It was true for the Sahaba from the very beginning because they were very healthy. But for us, or some of us, we are unhealthy. So fasting brings about greater physical health and then it does its job after the physical health once the body has found its balance. But fasting is a form of purification and Allah has made it obligatory upon us in order to raise us from that lower level of animal behavior and bestiality and so that we can rise to the rise to greater heights. This is only possible with distraction. You take your mind away from your physical eating, drinking and needs and focus on the ruh, on the spirit, because that's what Ramadan is all about. Ultimately, it's about the spirit. Fasting may cleanse the body and purify the mind as a secondary tertiary benefit, but its focus and its primary objective is to feed and nourish the soul. In fact, all we are doing is diverting our energy from the body to the spirit, because that is the essence of life. Both the spirits and the body need food. The body is from the dust of this earth. So its food and energy will come from the same source. The body is from the dust of the earth. The food will come from the earth. The ruh, the spirit, is celestial. It's heavenly. It's not earthly. So its energy, its food, its nourishment will also come from the heavens. And that is a deen. Both of them have to survive. The body has to survive. But the main life, the essence of life is the spirit in that body. The body is just a cage. It can be replaced. Limbs can be replaced. Most parts of the body can now be replaced. And in fact, they are talking about entire bodily transplants. But the ruh, that is the essence of life. That existed before the body and will continue to exist after the body. With our focus on the body, we starve our spirits, we starve our ruh, which is actually the core of our life. In Ramadan, Allah forces us to divert our attention from the body, forget the food and the drink of the body and its needs, and focus on the needs of the spirit. We give that life. And that's how we do the tazkiyah and the tarbiyah of the spirits. We're always talking about, I won't speak about tazkiyah, but it's similar to tarbiyah. We're always speaking about tarbiyah. We speak about the tarbiyah of children, 
And we normally refer to tarbiyah simply upbringing. If you were to ask anyone, what's the meaning of tarbiyah? They say Islamic upbringing. And it's a word that's entered virtually all languages. So we have it in African languages, Asian languages. It's a common word, tarbiyah. And what do we mean by tarbiyah? We just mean upbringing, Islamic upbringing. Tarbiyah actually means cultivation. Tarbiyah means cultivation. And the word is derived from horticulture and agriculture, mainly horticulture, where you have a plant and you allow, you take care of the plant, you cultivate it. And you allow it to grow and flourish. It's related to Rabba Yerbu Ribbon, which means to grow and to flourish, to have life. So just as a plant flourishes, but even a plant requires attention. It requires the right amount of light, heat, energy, water, nutrients, care. It's like a child. A plant is like a child. You will read that if you buy a plant from a gardening center and you move it to a new, you move it into your home, you want to look after it. You've paid money for it. You want to feed it. You want to do everything. And this is just a simple plant. But they actually say that once you bring it into a new environment, give it a few days before you provide it with water and nutrients. Why? To allow the plant to settle in and to overcome the shock. So a plant actually undergoes trauma if you remove it from its original location and place it in a new environment. And that's just a plant. So imagine, and we, of course, we apply the word tarbiyah to children. But the one child which is more in need of tarbiyah and attention than any other child is the ruh. That is the deprived child. So in Ramadan, we focus our attention from the body to the ruh. And that's what the whole of Ramadan and fasting, that's what the whole of fasting is about. And the wisdom and the purpose, what will it achieve? Perhaps Allah says at the end of the verse, that fasting has been prescribed for you as it was for those who came before you. One wisdom. Perhaps it may, you may attain taqwa. People speak about many wisdoms of fasting. Many of them are true, some of them aren't. So when people are interviewed or in articles and speeches and in books, people speak about the purpose and the wisdom of fasting, it creates sympathy and empathy for those who are poor. It allows you to share their hunger and their deprivation. All of that is true. But it's not the primary goal or objective of fasting. Some people actually just say that fasting is good for dieting. And that's the only purpose. Far from it. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions only one wisdom in this verse of the Qur'an. In the hope that you may attain taqwa. Fasting has been prescribed for us so that we may attain taqwa. Taqwa, what does taqwa mean? Taqwa is to guard oneself from the displeasure of Allah 
by guarding oneself from the disobedience of Allah. Taqwa means to guard. Taqwa means a guard. The word taqwa is a noun as well as a verbal noun. It's a, it's a verbal noun, a gerund, as well as a noun. For those students of Arabic, taqwa is an ism, as well as a masdar. Taqwa means to guard. The act of guarding is taqwa. But as a noun, as an ism, the word taqwa means a guard. Any item which you use as a guard to protect oneself is also called taqwa. So a shield is taqwa. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made the fast, which is taqwa in itself, it's a guard, in order to create taqwa in a person. Fasting is a shield, it's a protection. In order to create a guard and a protection and a shield for one. So if you fast properly in the month of Ramadan, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will create a guard for you a protection for you, a shield around you for the rest of the year. And it's a, Ramadan is a training period. And what happens in a training period? Everything's changed. But that change cannot be permanent. It's only for a limited period. After that, you have to move on. Ramadan is our nest. It's our childhood for the rest of the year. Compared to the rest of the year. Ramadan is our period in hospital. It's our training period. In our training period, Allah makes everything easy for us. Just as in training, you are told, this is it. You change your clothes, you put on your uniform. You avoid everything else. You, you have to focus your attention. There are no distractions. There are no other responsibilities. You don't do anything else. You focus only on this training. Training is intense. It's very intensive. But there are special provisions. There are guidelines, special provisions, facilitators. Things are made easy. Then once the training period is over and the trainer feels that you are now ready, then you go out and you apply your training. In normal, everyday conditions, circumstances, and life, without the protection and without the cushioning of the training period. And that's exactly like Ramadan. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes it a training period for us. Look at all the incentives and the facilitators. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala shuts the doors of Jahannam in Ramadan. Allah opens the doors of Jannah. Allah chains the shayateen and the rebellious jinn. Allah increases the reward of deeds. Allah changes people's behavior himself. Allah increases the presence of angels throughout the day and night. The angels call out every night. There are all of these facilitators in the month of Ramadan. But as soon as the month of Ramadan ends, all of this ends. If our fasting, our, our training in the month of Ramadan has been good, and we have passed, then once we end the month of Ramadan and we go out into normal everyday life, with the presence of the shayateen, 
without all the facilities of Ramadan, then we will be able to survive. And we will have taqwa with us. Taqwa, what is it, people? We normally translate it as a fear of Allah, which is correct, it's not incorrect, but it's only a partial meaning of the word taqwa. Taqwa means to guard oneself. From the displeasure of Allah, through guarding oneself from the disobedience of Allah. We guard everything. We protect everything. We guard our eyes. This is the meaning of taqwa. We guard our eyes from anything haram. We guard our tongue from anything haram. We guard our ears from anything haram. We guard our body from anything haram. We even guard our mind from haram thoughts and our hearts from haram feelings and emotions and sentiments. That's the meaning of taqwa. This is why an alim was asked that, what is taqwa? And he described it beautifully. He said, taqwa is that you take a plate, a tray, and you empty the thoughts of your mind and the feelings of your heart onto that tray. And then you go out walking around in the marketplace with your mind's thoughts and your heart's emotions in full view of the public. And you are not the least bit embarrassed or ashamed. That's how pure your thoughts are, how pure your emotions are. That's taqwa. That's very difficult to achieve. But we can work some way towards it. And since this is the meaning of taqwa, if you notice, this is exactly what fasting is. Siyam, I mentioned earlier, is abstention. So you're, uh, it's not just about abstaining from food and drink. And this is probably one of the most important lessons that we can take away to improve our fast. Fasting is not about remaining hungry and thirsty. I'm going to explain more about this when, we, when I comment on a few hadith in the next few weeks. So I'll defer discussion of this topic till then. But I'll just mention in summary that Fasting doesn't just mean remain the throat and the mouth and the stomach abstaining and refraining from food and drink. That's just part of it. It means every limb of the body abstaining from that which is haram. It's not only food that's forbidden to the tongue, the mouth and the stomach and drink. But it's anything haram that's forbidden to every limb of the body. The eyes must be protected from haram. The ears... The mouth, the tongue. In fact, the greatest destroyer of fasting is the tongue. We, we say things. We utter and mutter things. Sometimes in our impatience, in our anger, in our hunger. And that one word alone can destroy our entire fast. And that's why the Prophet wasallam says in the hadith, مَن لَمْ يَدَعْ قَوْلَ الزُّورِ وَالْعَمَلَ بِهِ فَلَيْسَ لِلَّهِ حَاجَةٌ فِي أَنْ يَدَعَ طَعَامَهُ وَشَرَابَهُ Whoever does not abandon falsehood in speech and in deed, then Allah has no need of his remaining hungry and thirsty. I.e., he can remain hungry and thirsty all day long, in a fast, believing that he's doing it for the sake of Allah. But if he, along with abandoning food and drink, if he does not abandon false speech and false deeds, meaning sinful speech and sinful deeds, then Allah has no interest 
no need whatsoever of his fast and of his remaining and hungry and thirsty. And at the end of the fast, all he will achieve, as the Prophet ﷺ says in a hadith, This is part of the hadith, that there are many fasting people who gain nothing from their fast except hunger. So imagine if we were to spend the next month in this heat with such difficulty and go to work and undergo so much, but we were to destroy that fast with careless talk or with careless gazing or with careless gossip. So if the fast is a shield and a guard, it will act as a shield and a guard for the rest of the year and create taqwa. If the fast lacks taqwa, it cannot create taqwa. And that is the biggest objective, the greatest wisdom of fasting. This brings us to the end of this verse. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, O believers, fasting has been ordained for you as it was ordained for those who came before you. Why? لَعَلَّكُمْ تَتَّقُونَ Perhaps you may attain taqwa. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about some of the laws of fasting. أَيَّامًا مَعْدُودَاتٍ فَمَنْ كَانَ مِنْكُمْ مَرِيضًا أَوْ عَلَى سَفَرٍ فَعِدَّةٌ مِنْ أَيَّامٍ أُخَرٍ وَعَلَى الَّذِينِ يُطِيقُونَهُ فِدْيَةٌ طَعَامُ مِسْكِينَ Till the end of the verse. فَمَنْ تَطُوعَ خَيْرًا فَهُوَ خَيْرٌ لَهُ وَأَنْ تَصُومُ خَيْرٌ لَكُمْ إِنْ كُنْتُمْ تَعَلَمُونَ This verse mentions something important about the obligation of fasting and fidya. Someone asked me last week as well that will you be commenting on some of the laws of fasting? I said, inshallah, it depends on the time, but because the laws of fasting are very detailed, it's a vast topic. We won't even be able to cover just the fada'il of Ramadan, let alone the Messiah. So, but I'll mention this because it's part of the commentary of the verse. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the second verse, in this topic of fasting, أَيَّامٌ مَعْدُودَاتٌ Fasting for a few prescribed numbered days. Then he says, whoever, of you, whoever amongst you is ill, or is on a journey, فَعِدَّةٌ مِّنْ أَيَّامٍ أُخَرٍ Then the completion should be made from other days. وَعَلَى الَّذِينَ يُطِيقُونَهُ فِدْيَةٌ طَعَامُ مِسْكِينٌ For those who are able, there is the fidya, the compensation of the feeding of a poor person. Now, let me explain this because it, it's relevant and it concerns us. Here some of the laws of fasting are mentioned. First of all, فَمَنْ كَانَ مِنْكُمْ مَرِيضًا أَوْ عَلَى سَفَرًا Whoever amongst you is on a journey, is ill or on a journey, then they should complete the count of fasting from other days. So, even though fasting is obligatory, if someone's traveling, then on the journey they are not required to fast. Or if they are ill, they are not required to fast. And I'd like to mention something about this. 
In fact, if I mention the background to the verse, it might help us understand the obligation of fasting and compensation even better. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَعَلَى الَّذِينَ يُطِيقُونَهُ فِدْيَةٌ طَعَامُ مِسْكِينَ And for those who are able, there is a compensation of feeding a poor person. Now, apparently that doesn't make sense. For those who are able, there is a compensation of feeding a poor person. The reason this doesn't make sense to us now in this context is because this verse is actually not related to the fast of Ramadan. The fast of Ramadan comes up in the next verse where Allah says, شَهْرُ رَمَضَانَ الَّذِي أُنزِلَ فِيهِ الْقُرْآنَ This verse refers to the first obligation of fasting in Islam. Fasting underwent a certain history. There was optional fasting in Makkah al-Mukarramah, before the Hijrah. After the Hijrah, after the emigration, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made the fasting of Ashura, the 10th of Muharram, obligatory. Along with, according to some narrations, the three bright nights of the month, meaning the three bright days of the month, 13th, 14th and 15th which remain a sunnah, originally these three days, along with the 10th of Muharram, were days of obligatory fasting. That may come as a surprise to some. These were the obligatory days. So for 13th, 14th and 15th of every lunar month, everyone was required to fast, it was an obligation along with the 10th of Muharram. However, and that's what that verse is about. However, Allah also told them that there is an obligation of fasting. However, those of you who are able to fast, but don't wish to, it's still obligatory, but the obligation can be waived by fidya, by compensation. For those who were unable to fast, there was nothing. They didn't have to fast, they didn't have to give compensation. So, although fasting was an obligation, even those who were able and capable, they had a choice of fasting or giving sadaqah, of feeding a poor person. Then, later, not too long after, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed the obligation of fasting in Ramadan. So the fasting of the 10th of Muharram and the three days of each month were no longer fard, an obligation, they became a sunnah. And the 30 days of fasting in Ramadan became an obligation. And that's mentioned in the next verse. However, the law of fidya also changed. So now for the obligation of Ramadan and fasting in Ramadan, there was no longer a choice. That if you were able, you had to fast now. Before, if you were able, you could fast or give fidya. Now, even if you are, if you are able, you have to fast. You cannot give fidya compensation. 
So what's a new ruling for Ramadan? It's very simple. And this is quite relevant, and I'll mention this because a lot of people ask about this. If you are, if you are resident in the month of Ramadan, and you're not a traveler, you're not a musafir, then obligation, fasting is obligatory upon you, man or woman. You must fast. If you are traveling, or you are ill in the month of Ramadan, and your illness is temporary, from which you hope to recover, that's important, your illness is temporary from which you hope to recover, or you are traveling, then the law is, فَعِدَّةٌ مِّنْ أَيَّامٍ أُخَرٍ Then a completion from other days. The obligation is merely postponed. It's not waived. You still don't have to pay anything. You don't have the option of paying anything. You must fast. So the obligation of fasting is merely postponed. You can't waive the obligation by paying money or giving fidya or feeding poor people. You can't. That's if you are traveling or you are ill with a temporary illness from which you hope to recover. So even if you are ill for all 30 days, it doesn't matter. You fast 30 days later, whenever you can, whenever you recover, and you can plan ahead when you hope to recover. And what I mean by a temporary illness is, it's not a terminal condition. So let's say somebody's broken a bone, and... As a result, they even undergo surgery. But they know the prognosis is good. They know that within a few months they will recover completely, their bone will have corrected itself, everything will have healed, and they will be able to resume normal life and normal eating and drinking. At the moment, the broken bone along with the surgery and along with the medication and fixed times for eating, taking medicine, etc., this prevents them from fasting. But even though it's serious, they may even have had surgery, is it a permanent condition or is it a temporary condition? It's temporary. And from which they hope to recover. So they do not give fidya. A lot, many people misunderstand this and they actually say, fine, you just give fidya and you're okay. You don't give fidya. You can't waive this obligation by feeding a poor person and giving fidya. Fidya is different from kafara. Kafara is expiation. And that's when you do something wrong and then you have to pay in order to correct that. This is fidya, which is an alternative to fasting. You give sadaqah, you feed a poor person. But as I said, only if you are traveling and if you are ill with a temp, or if you are ill with a temporary condition, you can't give fidya. And waive the obligation. The obligation of fasting is merely postponed. So who is fidya for then? Who is compensation for? As an alternative to fasting. Where instead of fasting you pay money to or you feed a poor person. This is only for those people who are old. And they no longer have the ability to fast. And... Obviously, for them, it's a permanent condition. Because of old age, their inability to fast now will remain the case. 
till they pass away. So they have no hope of ever gaining sufficient strength to fast. So for them it's a permanent condition. Therefore they pay fidya. Or if someone is ill with a terminal condition, Allah protects all of us, but if anyone is suffering from an illness, which is a lifelong condition, by terminal I don't mean fatal. By terminal I mean it's a consistent lifelong condition. So if someone is suffering from any lifelong condition, from which there is no hope of recovery, and the most you can do with that condition is manage it and control it through medication, and that condition prevents you from fasting, then since there is no hope of recovery and it's not temporary, then for them, again, even if they are young, they can pay fidya. Because there's no hope of them ever postponing their fast till other days, as Allah says. So this is a general ruling. Uh, the specifics I would advise you to refer to the ulama. Now, one final thing I'd like to say here in relation to this verse. Allah also says later, يُرِيدُ اللَّهُ بِكُمُ الْيُسْرِ وَلَا يُرِيدُ بِكُمُ الْعُسْرِ In the third verse in relation to Ramadan. Allah wishes ease for you. Allah does not wish difficulty for you. There are two lessons to learn from that phrase. That part of the verse. One, fasting is possible. It's not too difficult. It's achievable. It's attainable. The Sahaba radiallahu anhum managed. And that's because their lifestyle was healthy. It was extremely healthy. They wouldn't eat much. And it's quite strange. If you notice, the, during the time of the Sahaba radiallahu anhum, Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and the Sahaba radiallahu anhum, they would eat a lot of meat. A lot of red meat. That was their main, that was their staple diet. A lot of meat. But one, because it was consumed in moderation and with a very active lifestyle. And they wouldn't indulge Despite eating a lot of red meat, the Sahaba radiallahu anhum, and people in general were extremely healthy. Many of them would live, Hakim ibn Hizam radiallahu anhu, one Sahabi, Hakim ibn Hizam radiallahu anhu, he lived till the age of 120. And he embraced Islam at the age of 60. So they say he spent 60 years in Jahiliyyah and 60 years in Islam. Asma radiallahu ta'ala anha, the sister of Ummul Mu'mineen, Aisha radiallahu anha, she lived for a very long time. Again, according to some narrations, over a hundred years of age. And she was fit and healthy till the end. So, this was true for many of the Arabs, that despite their consumption of a lot of red meat. And that's all they would eat on most occasions. They were very healthy because of other factors. They lived an active, they had an active lifestyle and they would consume food in moderation. So for them, because of their health and their moderation, fasting wasn't that difficult, even in the heat of Arabia. They were able to fast. Unfortunately, because of our poor health in general, our sedentary lifestyles, 
and our indulgence and overconsumption of food and lack of moderation in consumption, when it comes to fasting, all of a sudden it's like starvation. It's like a famine, forced famine. And therefore we do experience difficulty and we complain about the weather and about the thirst and the heat and the long hours. But Sahaba radiallahu anhu, children would fast in Arabia, in Medina, in Al-Madinat al-Munawwara, even in the heat of summer, Ramadan, the children would fast. And it would be easy for them. And even now, all over the world, people in hot climates, they fast. It's, so it's attainable, it's achievable, it's possible. And one of the reasons I mention this is because one of the... Some people now ridicule and mock the very concept of fasting. And some of the comments made are, why does Allah want people to starve themselves? What good is there for Allah in people starving themselves? It's not for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Our intention is sincere for the sake of Allah, but what's the purpose that Allah mentions? Perhaps you may attain taqwa. It's a form of purification. It's a perfect detoxification for the body, the mind, the spirit, the soul, the heart, for everything. And there are immense benefits. But, of course, if we just suddenly live a life, if we live a life of indulgence and luxury, and then suddenly plunge into the deep end of fasting, we may find it, we will find it difficult. But, as a wholesome thing, as a holistic approach, if we have a good, moderate lifestyle, as the Prophet ﷺ practiced, Allahu Akbar. He was in tune with nature. He was in tune with nature. And if someone was to observe the sunnah, uh, one of the, I met one alim, and he mentioned about one of the ulama who passed away some time ago, and may Allah have mercy on him. He lived till the age of 101. Until, approximately, until the age of 101, he was teaching all the way till the end. Allahu Akbar. And in fact, I told my students, uh, I teach students Bukhari, and I told them, because uh, if I ever tell them that I'd like you to come in on the weekend, or extra hours, then you see the sudden change in their facial expressions. I can even sense the tenseness in the atmosphere. That's why I tell them to come in out of normal class hours. So I was sharing a, uh, a story with them. It's not a story, it's a fact of one of the ulama, of the recent past. We're not talking about the Sahaba, who was a teacher, who was, one of the who was a teacher of Bukhari. He, this was in the last century, when people would travel to Hajj and Umrah by ship, not by plane. And trains were available. So, and he was a teacher in the Indian subcontinent. He travelled for one of the pilgrimages. I believe it was for Hajj. So he travelled to Hajj. After the whole Hajj journey, he travelled back along with his entourage of students. He travelled from Jiddah Airport, uh, sorry, Jiddah Port, by ship. 
down the Red Sea, past the Strait of Aden, and then across the Indian Ocean, all the way to Karachi, which was a famous seaport for the whole of India, undivided in India at the time, it was undivided. He disembarked at Karachi, and it was a, it was a journey quite long. <coughs> Disembarking at Karachi, he immediately caught the train, within a few hours, and train in those days of the Indian subcontinent. And he travelled on the train. It wasn't first class or second class, it was just a normal third class carriage. He travelled on the train. Within a few hours of disembarking from the boat ship, he travelled on the train from Karachi for 24 hours to Delhi. And arriving at Delhi again, within a few hours, not stepping out of the station, he, within a few hours, he caught, along with his students and entourage, he caught the next train for a couple of hours to northern India. And there, when he arrived at his hometown, he arrived just before, at dawn. He went home, left his luggage, prepared himself, went to the masjid, prayed Fajr Salah with Jama'ah in congregation, and immediately after Fajr, Allahu Akbar, he sat down to teach Bukhari. That was the love and the passion of hadith and the ability. Allahu Akbar. Without any rest or food, just skimping on food, eating very little food on the journey. No rest. We, when we take a holiday, we need another holiday just to recover from the holiday. And this was our love of hadith. This was our love of sunnah. And that's in the recent past. So there, those ulama who follow the sunnah, though anyone who follows the sunnah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, they are able to achieve much. And I was speaking about this one other alim. He, he passed away at the age of 101. He taught all the way till the end. He was teaching and preaching all the way till the end. And I met one of his students who's a scholar and I said, uh, I asked him about it. And he said that our shaykh, he would observe the sunnah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam in almost everything, including food. He ate in moderation and he followed the timings of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So anyway, anyone who follows the sunnah of the Messenger of Allah, inshallah, they will be in tune with nature too. And what was a beautiful sunnah of the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam? He did it himself, he advised us. No talking after Isha. He forbade summer. No talking after Isha. He would pray Isha Salah. The wives mention in the hadith that he would pray Isha Salah. He would come home completely. He would come home. Then, if he needed to speak to his family about anything, he would speak to them briefly. Otherwise, he would retire. And he would sleep. Immediately after Isha. And then he would rise early in the morning for the Hajjah. Then he would spend a good portion of the night weeping, praying, prostrating, bowing. Then he would rest again for a short while. Then he would rise for fudge. So he was very much in tune with nature. So those who lead that lifestyle, for them, of course, it's fasting is 
I wouldn't say it's extremely easy, but it's relatively easy. It's attainable, it's achievable, it's something that's doable. Of course, we with our lifestyle, we are going to find it difficult. So when Allah says, Allah wishes ease for you, Allah does not wish difficulty for you, this is one of the meanings. We can do it. But we have to have a holistic approach. Number two, fasting is easy for you, Allah wishes ease for you, not difficulty for you. We should not make fasting difficult for ourselves. And I'll end with this point. Allah has granted us a concession. Those who are in need of that concession should make use of that concession. And others should not make it difficult for them either. One should never fast out of a sense of obligation to the creation. They should do it out of a sense of obligation to the creator, but not to the creation. So if someone is ill, and we need to do this for ourselves and our families and colleagues and friends. If someone is ill and they are unable to fast, then they should not force themselves. The Prophet ﷺ was traveling and one of the, the Prophet ﷺ saw someone had collapsed and the Sahaba anhum was standing over them trying to assist them. So the Messenger ﷺ asked, what's happened to them? So they replied that, O oh, Messenger of Allah, he was fasting. So because of the fasting, the heat, he collapsed. So the Prophet ﷺ said, إِنَّهُ لَيْسَ مِنَ الْبِرِّ it's not piety, it's not virtue to fast whilst on a journey. Because if the person is incapable, or they know that they are exposing themselves to danger, or it's going to be risky, then the Prophet wasallam said, it's not an act of virtue, it's not good. It's more virtuous for them not to fast. So there we have a lesson. Zainab bin one day the Prophet ﷺ came out and he saw a string attached from one pillar to the other. So he said, what's this? So he was told that one of the ladies from his household, one of the wives, Zainab bin anha, she had strung up that string so that she would stand in prayer and if, whilst praying, this is optional the Hajjid prayer at night. If she felt fatigue or drowsy and sleepy, then she wouldn't fall, but she'd just fall back slightly on the string. So the Prophet ﷺ said, remove it. Then he said, one of you should only stand in prayer for as long as you are able to. And that if they feel sleepiness or drowsiness, then they should leave, they should stop and go and rest. Because they do not know, they do not know what they will be saying. In their fatigue, in their sleepiness, they may become delirious and not realize. And rather than, he says in one hadith, rather than praying for oneself, one may end up cursing oneself. So, moderation even in ibadah, even in salah, even in siyam, in fasting. That means, especially in Ramadan, considering the heat, etc. If someone is ill, then they should not force themselves to fast. If Allah has granted them a concession, they should make use of that concession. That's actually better for them. If fasting exposes them to risk, and I say this because many people suffer from serious conditions, lifelong conditions, things such as diabetes, other 
lifelong conditions. And yet, people insist on fasting. It depends on their level of health. If, despite having a lifelong condition, they are able to do it, then alhamdulillah. But if they, if they find it difficult and he exposes them to greater risk, he actually increases their illness. Then, or exposes them to other risks, then they should not fast. And they should actually make use of the concession. If they want, they can fast maybe in winter. Or if they feel that they are unable to manage, then they can just give fidya. So they shouldn't force themselves. They sh- and most importantly, and I end with this, as I said earlier, no one should fast out of a sense of obligation to the creation. And we should ensure that not only do we not force ourselves to fast if we are unable to, but we shouldn't force others. And force meaning even out of obligation. So we should be careful about what we say to others. If we start passing snidey comments that he's not fasting, she's not fasting, and if we begin to judge others, then others, in their fear of being labelled or condemned, even though they find it difficult to fast, they won't fast. They will fast. Even though it's problematic for them, they will fast. And then they will be doing it out of a sense of obligation to others, not to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Even though it's risky for them. If Allah has given them this concession, and He Himself says, Allah wishes ease for you, not difficulty for you, then we shouldn't make it difficult for ourselves, nor should we make it difficult for others. Of course, this has to be in balance as well. So it's not a question of we are able to... Allah says, Allah wishes ease for you. That means I just want fast. No, it's for those who are unable to find it difficult. I'll end with this. I pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala enables us to understand. May Allah... Sha'ban is about to begin. May Allah give us the strength, the inspiration, the ability, the resolve and willpower to begin fasting and to begin preparing for the upcoming month. May Allah make the upcoming month of Ramadan a source of blessing, guidance, forgiveness, rahmah and maghfirah for us. Wa sallallahu wa sallam ala abdihi wa rasulih nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een. Subhanakallahumma bihamdik nashidu wa la ilaha illa ant. Astaghfiruhu wa natubu ilayk. This lecture was delivered by Sheikh Abu Yusuf Riyadhul Haq and has been brought to you by Al-Kotha Productions. For additional lectures and products, please visit www.akstore.com. We can also be contacted by phone on 0044-121-771-3777 or by email via sales at akstore.com. Produced under license by Alcotha Productions, all rights reserved for Alcotha Productions and the author. Any unauthorized distribution, broadcasting or public performance of this recording will constitute a violation of copyright.